0: Ready for your weekly tech fix? Want to know how technology sets us free? Well, get ready, because here it comes. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, entrepreneur and technophile, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now, here's Brian.
1: Here I am, the golden stallion of the tech world, the Rembrandt of the podcast canvas, ready for another Wonderful episode of Sovereign Tech. It is Brian Sovereign with you, of course, as uh, the lovely and hyper intelligent producer of the show, Stephanie Murphy just said. Um, just got back from. Well, you might have heard the special that that can't that is came out just before this episode came out just got back from TerraCoin Conference 2013 in San Jose and there was a lot of TerraCoin action to be had there uh very very exciting so if you want some of uh mine and Dr. Stephanie Murphy's uh impressions and reactions to TerraCoin Conference 2013 you can actually find the episode at the SoundCloud page soundcloud.com slash Sovereign Tech or at SovereignTech.com it's there as well and uh you know it's a good conversation a little over an hour and we covered a lot of topics and, and, and talked, you know, even more than just about TerraCoin Conference 2013. Of course, I'm talking about Bitcoin Conference 2013, but I'm very, very excited about TerraCoin, so I like to give TerraCoin a little bit of love. Of course, I'm also excited about Litecoin, so I give that as much love as I can, too. Um, just a reminder, real quick, that if you want to check out, if you want to see the Golden Stallion doing his thing, kind of live, I will be moderating a talk in, in I believe it's in November, uh, at Keenvention in Keene, New Hampshire, uh, a town that I once called home. And that'll, that's uh, in November. You can go to Keenvention.info or look it up on Facebook. That's K-E-E-N-Evention.info, and you can look into that. And the tickets are pretty inexpensive from. What i understand and they're at an early bird special right now and if you haven't looked into that please do check it out and again i will be there so it should be a great time um as far as uh, any other announcements, I can't really think of any. Later on in the show, we are going to talk about one of the big events in the tech world that happened uh, recently, which was Google I.O. 2013. We will be discussing that. Uh, it, you know, it went for pick of the week. So keep listening to the episode if you want to kind of hear my impressions about about that. Uh, let's get right into the first story of the week, and that is... This is from a kind of a, a weird website but it's such an intriguing uh, article um and the it's from filmsforaction.org and uh you know well I guess it's actually from Yes magazine now that makes sense because I was wondering I was like well, why the heck is this story it's like I'm, this website's just totally odd, but it is from a from a genuine magazine and it's some genuine journalism and uh it's survival of the nicest A new theory of our origin says cooperation, not competition, is instinctive. So this is, of course, Sovereign Tech, the show about science and technology and how it can set you free. And I think this is pretty interesting. This definitely falls under the the science header. And, uh, we've talked a few times about, I'm very, very interested in, uh, paleolithic matters. I'm actually interested in, I mean, like the paleo lifestyle. I've talked about that before, or the paleo diet, all of the above, but I'm also interested in paleolithic times because, okay, fine. So like, I'm into the paleo diet because... Um, that's how humans ate and it's pretty much the best way how to, you know, be healthy would be to eat at least under the, the, the rules that, that exist, um, you know, for it, like no gluten, um, and low carb you know, things like that. So it's best to stick within that to, to be at your healthiest, which is what I absolutely, I absolutely want to be at my healthiest, uh, because I need to live long enough for transhumanist technologies to exist, uh, which is something we will be talking about. We may even do a whole special on what are called life extension technologies or LET technology, uh, LETs. And I will be doing that. I've had requests to talk about that and I will do so. But anyway, so I'm interested in the paleolithic matters for that aspect. I'm also interested, you know, in like, okay, what exactly, you know, not just diet, but how did they operate? How did, what was the kind of their exercise regimen if they even had one? Uh, and also the other interesting thing. And I listened to, there's this great podcast out there. If you haven't heard it, uh, it's called complete Liberty and it's by Wes Bertrand, great guy. And, uh, an incredibly enjoyable podcast in that, I mean, it is just solid Liberty. It's complete Liberty. And it literally is. It covers a you know, almost any aspect you can imagine. And there was a podcast a little while back where he talked about how that it wasn't until farming and the Neolithic age that people suddenly you know, that, that there was allowed to be a, a state, a government, you know, a control that, that, that control was able to be put upon uh, pan sapiens. And so that's another reason that the Paleolithic era interests me is the, the philosophy of Paleolithic people. And that's what this article is about. Uh, So let's break right into it. Uh, A century ago, industrialists like Andrew Carnegie believed that Darwin's theories justified an economy of vicious competition and inequality. They left us with an ideological legacy that says the corporate economy in which wealth concentrates in the hands of a few produces the best for humanity this was always a distortion of darwin's ideas his 1871 book the descent of man argued that the human species had succeeded because of traits like sharing and compassion those communities he wrote which included the greatest number of the most sympathetic members would flourish best and rear the greatest number of offspring Darwin was no economist, but wealth sharing and cooperation have always looked more consistent with his observations about human survival than the elitism and hierarchy that dominates contemporary corporate life. Nearly 150 years later, modern science has verified Darwin's early insights with direct implications for how we do business in our society. New peer-reviewed research by Michael Tomasello, an American psychologist and co-director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, has synthesized three decades of research to develop a comprehensive evolutionary theory of human cooperation. What can we learn about sharing as a result? Tomasello holds that there were two key steps that led to humans' unique form of independence. The first was all about who was coming to dinner. Approximately two million years ago, a fledgling species known as Homo habilis emerged on the Great Plains of Africa. At the same time that these four-foot-tall bipedal apes appeared, uh, a period of global cooling produced vast open environments. This climate change event ultimately forced our hominid ancestors to to adapt in a new way of life or perish entirely since they lacked the ability to take down large game like the ferocious carnivores of the early uh, pleistocene the solution they hit upon was scavenging the carcasses of recently killed large mammals the analysis of fossil bones from this period has revealed evidence of stone tool cut marks overlaid on top of carnivore teeth marks the precursors of modern humans had a habit of arriving late to the feast However, this survival strategy brought an entirely new set of challenges. Individuals now had to coordinate their behaviors, work together, and learn how to share. For apes living in the dense rainforest, the search for ripe fruit and nuts was largely an individual activity. But on the plains, our ancestors needed to travel in groups to survive. And the acts of scavenging from a single animal carcass forced protohumans to learn to tolerate each other and allow each other a fair share. This resulted in a form of social selection that favored cooperation. Individuals who attempted to hog all of the food at a scavenged carcass would be actively repelled by others, writes Tomasello, and perhaps shunned in other ways as well. This evolutionary legacy can be seen in our behavior today, particularly among children who are too young to have been taught such notions of fairness. For example, in a 2011 study published in the journal Nature, anthropologist Katharina Haman and her colleagues found that three-year-old children share food more equitably if they gain it through cooperative effort rather than via individual labor or no work at all. In contrast, chimpanzees showed no difference in how they shared food under these different scenarios. They wouldn't necessarily hoard the food individually, but they they placed no value on cooperative efforts either. The implication, according to Tomasello, is that human evolution has predisposed us to work collaboratively and given us an intuitive sense that cooperation deserves equal rewards. The second step in Tomasello's theory leads directly into what kinds of businesses and economies are more in line with human evolution. Humans have, of course, uniquely large population sizes, much larger than those of other primates. It was the human penchant for cooperation that allowed groups to grow in number and eventually become tribal societies. Humans, more than any other primate, Developed psychological adaptations that allowed them to quickly recognize members of their own group through unique behaviors traditions or forms of language and developed and develop a shared cultural identity in the pursuit of a common goal the result says tomasello was a new kind of interdependence and group-mindedness that went well beyond the joint intentionality of small scale cooperation to a kind of collective intentionality at the level of the entire society What does this mean for the different forms of business today? Corporate workplaces probably aren't in sync with our evolutionary roots and may not be good for our long-term success as humans. Corporate culture imposes uniformity mandated from the top down throughout the organization. But the cooperative, the financial model in which a group of members own a business and make the rules about how to run it, is a modern institution that has much in common with the collective tribal heritage of our species. Worker-owned cooperatives are regionally distinct and organized around their constituent members. As a result, worker co-ops develop unique cultures that, following Tom Tomasello's theory, would be, the, would be expected to better promote a shared identity among all members of the group. The shared identity would give rise to greater trust and collaboration without the need for centralized control. Aha. Moreover, the structure of corporations is a recipe for worker alienation and dissatisfaction. Humans have evolved the ability to quickly form collective intentionality that motivates group members to pursue a shared goal. Once they have formed a joint goal, Tomasello says, humans are committed to it. Corporations, by law, are required to maximize profits for their investors. The shared goal among corporate employees is not to benefit their own community, but rather a distant population of financiers who have no personal connection to their lives or labor. However, because worker-owned cooperatives focus on maximizing value for their members, the cooperative is operated and for the local community, a goal much more consistent with our evolutionary heritage. As Darwin concluded in The Descent of Man, the more enduring social instincts conquer the less persistent instincts. As worker-owned cooperatives continue to gain prominence around the world, we may ultimately witness the downfall of Carnegie's law of competition and a return to the collaborative environments that the human species has long called home. Wow, okay, a lot to take in. And initially, let's admit it, okay, a lot of people that follow the libertarian bent or the anarcho-capitalist bent um, or, or even the conservative bent or whatever. Uh, n- now, I mean I don't really have the, like this big problem with uh, you know with Andrew Carnegie like a lot of a lot of people apparently do. And I can see where someone would read this article, okay, and come off and, and come away with the idea that, oh, wow, well, you know, no, this is communism, we should all be helping each other, you know, uh, the worker is going to hand off to this person and that. And that's, I, that's not what this article, I mean, again, I can see where it would be taken that way, but that's not what this article is really saying, okay? It's saying that, you know, that that this whole idea of competition, that you need to be a loner and all this stuff, and um, it, it's really, it's just, it's rewriting our history it's rewriting. I mean, there's something to the idea of survival of the fittest. Okay. But survival of the fittest doesn't always just run to like one, you know, like one animal. Like you look at it, you look at survival of the fittest from an aspect of, okay. uh, So one chimpanzee, because the chimpanzee is so well designed, it survived. No, the chimpanzee designed because it's in a, because it's kind of in a group. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so no one this isn't like this. Maybe they're trying to push for some degree of of communism. But I think that the point it's trying to make is far more accurate in that. We're designed to work together. It reminds me of it, it sounds far more to me like Leonard Reed's. I pencil, and if you don't know what I pencil is, it's a pretty short. It's a practically a pamphlet. I guess it's a book, though. Um, and in I pencil, it talks about the division. It, it's really it, it's laying out the division of labor. That okay, wh- what does it take to make a pencil? And it just goes down this laundry list of everything it takes to make a pencil. And it's not just done by one person. Okay, so this whole idea of survival of the fittest in the social sense that a lot of libertarians seem to seem to like for some reason just isn't so and it's not part of liberty anyway because liberty is all about the division of labor about working together about the guy okay this guy makes lead and he's willing to sell it to me so i can get it from him and then i can get the wood from this guy over here and then i can make a pencil it's a group effort in the first place yes one person maybe came up with the idea for the pencil okay but it wasn't just one person that made it all come together And what was the pencil needed for? How did the person make money that needed the pencil? They made money because there was people who like to write, who use writing implements. And so the idea came to him from there. It's an interconnectedness. It's a cooperation in the market, not competition. It's a cooperation in the market that allows these things to come together. Do you see? Okay. This is, this is the point that I'm getting at and we're designed that way. And I do appreciate the mindlessness that a lot of corporate America today, especially puts on to the people uh, the and what what i mean by that is you go there you work you're in this cubicle you're totally um you know cut off from any other you know from any other person or at least it can seem that way and that definitely smacks of you know kind of a, a neo-slavery um and you, you know there, there's people who will uh, you know, who who kind of say that, like, you know, oh, co- corporate culture, you know, it, it creates, well, this article said it, it creates uniformity. It creates conformity. Okay. And yeah, th- the business is not thinking for, you know, for itself, for its workers. Um, and, and it's not philosophical. You know, it's just like, okay, how can I get, how can I get these, you know, these financiers happy? And that's fine. I've been a financier and I want to be happy. Okay. I don't want it to be legally imposed, but I want to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just as important to me that the people like the businesses, you know, like businesses that I would want to fund, say I was an angel investor and I wanted to help a startup. I want to believe in the company and I want that company to do really well. Um, you know, and I want the people in it to be treated well, because in my opinion, and I think this article lays it out as fact is that if everybody's kind of treated well, everybody's cooperating, then the better things come to be. OK, so this isn't this article isn't a knock on the idea that, uh, you know, yeah, we, we all you know, everybody gets a fair share. I mean, yeah, it says everybody gets a fair share. But I think the more point on that was that to survive, our ancestors had to know, OK, we, we had to band together. In fact, there was a volcano okay, that erupted, I believe, around India. And this is around 70,000 years ago. When that happened, at best guess, there were but a few thousand pan-sapiens left on the planet. Out, out of millions or however many existed before, they were gone. Okay, this, this was almost, this, this was an, a literal extinction-level event when this volcano went off 70,000 years ago. And if you were here, here's the thing, if, you know, if our ancestors then were just beating each other up and, you know, proving who is the alpha male and taking from everybody else and forcing the other person it's like, oh, well, I'm I'm the fittest and and I'm going to make you go hunt for me and all this stuff. If that kind of if that kind of business was happening, we would have never made it, especially in such small numbers. We made it probably because there was a natural division of labor and everybody wanted to bring something to the table to survive. And then later to thrive. To continue on. I love I love the title to the survival of the nicest. That, that is so great. You know. Why? There's two things. I mean, you can't take any action. Unselfishly. It's just not possible. OK, you're, you're always acting with an enlightened self-interest Whether you realize it or not. In fact, even people like, you know, uh, superstitious people, religious people that claim, oh, I'm doing this for the Lord. uh, Well, why are you doing it for the Lord? Admit it. It's because, all right, you love him or because you want to go to heaven or something like that. You're still acting within self interest, you're still acting essentially selfishly so you always act within that now you want to survive so you work so you know the these paleolithic humans worked with each other they all wanted to live they all wanted to survive and so they cooperated they didn't beat the crap out of each other or threaten to kill the other one because you know because uh they they wanted their stuff that's just not it's not how it happened and science is bearing that out now okay and this whole idea of competition Google doesn't, here's a modern example. Google doesn't compete. They pretend that you don't exist. Nintendo does the same thing. They don't compete. They just pretend you don't exist and they do their own thing. And Nintendo's an even better example because everybody, remember when the Wii came out, everybody laughed at motion controllers. Okay. The Wii runs off of those motion controls where you have to actually move to play. You can't, you don't just, you know, sit on your ass. And everybody laughed at them. They're doing their own thing. They weren't following the, you know, the party line. And then the, Wii becomes the best-selling video game system of all time. Okay. So this whole idea of, you know, yeah, I got to be better than the guy next to me. No, 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 no. You just got to bring what you've got to the table and then everything works out. That's how the market works. You know, even, even Logan von Mises, he hated the word competition. He always used the word cooperation. You can look it up. Human action, even he knew the study of praxe- praxeology, the study of human action is totally based upon the idea of cooperation, not this competition, you know, crap. Okay. I mean, there's, there's something to be, you know, you can say something for friendly competitions. Like, yeah, I bet I can, you know, get this one faster than you. And that's just having a good time. And that's really cooperating towards each other's goals anyway. But, but this whole idea, yeah, you know, this, the survival of the fittest stuff, is just a misinterpretation. And I agree with the article when it's saying that, that that's not what Darwin meant at all, or at least he wasn't applying it in that. In that now, I mean, your traits, your genetic traits are survival of the fittest. Okay. No doubt about that. But even that comes up to like epigenetics and and things of that nature, which is all incredible stuff to, to research. Um, so, so yeah, so let, let's start maybe. In fact, I wonder how, you know, this isn't trickery. This is facts that we're laying out. And I wonder if maybe we talk to people more in coming from the aspect of cooperation in the market instead of competition in the market, how many people could we attract to the ideas of anarchy and liberty when we do that? And it's not a trick. We're, we're just being more accurate and that that's how we are. Okay. And I, and I love how, how it says that it's so funny this whole idea of the law of competition that they laid out with, you know, look at, read this article, go ahead. It'll be in the show notes, sovereigntech.com tech.com or soundcloud.com slash sovereign tech, read into it. And it, it just lays right out and says that conformity is a byproduct of that. It's not you besting the other guy. You're just becoming part of the, part of the machine. And that's what we're all about, right? We're individualists. I mean, if I could, you know, maybe if I could pick any word to describe me the best to be individualist, because I believe in the individual. And do doing this whole, you know, being a part of the in the market, the, the market of competition, and whatever, actually takes away your individualism. It's an interesting thought. I mean, and, and, and that's something that I think a lot of, you know, libertarians and anarchists and ancaps caps and whatever, you know, whatever you want to call yourself you know needs to analyze and you know so this leads me to to one more thing where there's so many people that say oh well you know if if we didn't force people to be good they wouldn't be good that's not true in fact clearly our paleolithic ancestors were naturally good and were naturally giving why because empathy is just a fact of nature the fact that rats have empathy rats (laughs) rats have empathy why wouldn't we Again, it's in our nature, and it's always been. I'll be right back with more. You're listening to Sovereign Tech. Are you tired of people wasting away all their precious time? Then stop using the same social media as them. Google Plus is a centralized hub for all of your Google services, your ideas, and your passions. Google Plus has a much more international user base, as to where other forms of social media center around so-called developed nations that really don't do anything exciting in the first place. Google Plus has almost no spam and has very few cat pictures, pictures of police, or anything else government-related. Stop using Facebook. You have an alternative. Start using Google Plus today. Tech Roulette. You want to play? It is time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories that get submitted to me through the various uh, channels that it can be done through, be it on sovereigntech.com. There's a place to submit posts there. Um, there's also the web uh, the email, which is sovereign tech at hush.ai, that may be changing soon, but for right now we're sticking with Hushmail, um, which is a, a email service that I certainly highly recommend. Also through the Google Plus page, uh, which is my actually the Google Plus page is my personal, my very own Google Plus page. When you connect with me there, you are connecting directly with me. Uh and I recommend you do that. You can just go to G P L U S G Plus slash Brian Sovereign and you it'll go ahead and circle me put me you know put follow me whatever that's go for it um and that's a great channel I love to use and Google Plus recently has been very very much improved so take a look at it if you haven't in in a little while uh it is it's getting better by the day it was already great but now it's just getting better um so lots of avenues to get in touch with me and that you know that's that's certainly one of them and this and pretty much what i do is with all the stories and i've got plenty of them but keep them coming please because we've got if you notice in the show the show numbers there's four digits and so i plan on doing this for that long so keep these stories coming okay uh and this one was uh was actually sent through the g plus page and this is from the verge uh lights out could a powerful blast from the sun send us back to the stone age. That's very interesting. We were just talking about the stone age in the, uh, in the last, um, last segment. And, you know, in fact, sometimes I really just do this on the fly and, and, and it seems like shows will naturally kind of have a theme about them, even when I didn't plan it, because I just, like I say, I I generally do eeny, meeny, miny, mo with these things. Um, and so that, that's just kind of ironic that we were just talking about the stone age and now we might get blasted back to it. Uh, let's, let's start cooperating or we might. Um, let's, let's go right into the article of all the issues facing the world right now that the U S government is concerned about. The sun may seem to be an odd one, but the white house is taking a threat, taking the threat of a massive solar eruption seriously. Uh, that's scary because the white house clearly can't solve any problems. Um, not without creating a million more. So I'm a little worried about this, but we'll keep reading the article. Late last month, it released a new, largely overlooked report outlining the risks of solar eruptions that strike the Earth, including the potential to cause massive, months-long power outages affecting upwards of 130 million people in the U.S. alone, in one worst-case scenario. Still more troubling, the report, prepared by space weather experts from multiple government agencies, found that while the U.S. is currently equipped with some of the best machinery for monitoring and forecasting such events, budget cuts over the next decade could put the country at risk of losing critical capabilities that have significant economic and security impacts that's in quote the potential for the sun to unleash the big one is here said michael uh, bonadonna the report's lead author and executive secretary for the national space weather program the agency is in charge of coordinating these solar monitoring efforts it's not a question of if but when and are we ready The big one that Bonadonna refers to is an extreme version of a regularly occurring type of solar event known as coronal mass ejection or CME. Coronal mass ejection. That that sounds kind of hot, but obviously it it isn't. Or it actually literally is hot, as in, like, temperature-wise. But uh, anyway... (laughs) Uh, starting in the sun's outer atmosphere, Corona, uh, a CME is a powerful blast of millions of tons of solar gas and parts of the sun's magnetic field, which fly toward earth at around a million miles an hour, such CMEs thin out as they travel through space over days. And by the time they arrive at our planet, most of them go unnoticed, causing only relatively minor disturbances to our planet's own magnetic field. Every 11 years, the sun enters its cyclical period of increased activity called solar maximum, rising the potential for CMEs up to every few days. During this time, there is a heightened chance of especially powerful CMEs with magnetic fields pointed in the opposite direction of Earth. When one of these CMEs reaches our planet, it can cause a geomagnetic storm ripping away part of our Earth's own magnetic field in the, in the atmosphere and rearranging it. These violent storms can last for days and result in the beautiful sight of the northern or southern lights, auroras like the aurora borealis, but can also damage several critical technological systems, including GPS, other satellites, airline radio communications, and yes, electrical power grids on the ground. As it turns out, the sun is expected to enter its period of increased activity this year, uh, though so far it's been a relatively quiet one. The Space Weather Prediction Center at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association is in charge of forecasting the intensity of these events using a scale from G1 to G5, higher is worse, and warning all of the industries that might be affected. The fact is, we're almost at a point where if you ask the question, who uses space weather services, my answer is almost everyone said William Murtaugh, program coordinator for NOAA's Space Prediction Weather Center, also a co-author of the new report. Murtaugh pointed out that even the pipeline industry was at risk of being affected by solar events because pipelines themselves are electrically conductive. Murtaugh's job is to deliver space weather warnings, especially those of geomagnetic magnetic storms, to other industries in time for them to take action and avoid heavy damage. Because of that information, industries have managed to avoid damage to their systems from lesser G1 to G4 storms that have occurred over the years. Okay, so these things have happened, and uh, it would appear to me that life has gone on, and no one even really knows about it. In fact, I, I would have to do research. I don't, I'm not aware of where a G4 storm has occurred, and... That it somehow ruined something. But anyway, we'll keep going. Murtaugh said the success of this program explains why even when there are dire reports of solar flares and storms in the mainstream media, they often don't result in any perceivable damage to the public at large. After the event happens, the media says nothing happened. But with space weather, something's always happening. When it comes to the G5 or great geomagnetic storms, it's unclear that information alone would be enough to mitigate their effects. As Murtaugh told The Verge, we sometimes refer to them as space weather Katrinas. That's, of course, a reference to Hurricane Katrina, which was uh, just an absolute travesty. Um, let's let's move ahead a little bit. This is kind of a lengthy article, but you can read it all. You can go to SovereignTech.com or SoundCloud.com slash and all the show notes are there, and you can check it out. Um, so the NOAA pretty much part of the reason they're claiming partly that the reason we haven't noticed that things, these things occur is because they are informing companies what they need to do to keep it from affecting everybody. So that's kind of nice, but at the same time, like, what are they informing them to do to put an entire warehouse in a Faraday cage? (laughs) You know what I mean? Now, Now, a Faraday cage, if you're not, if you're not sure what that is, it's, um, it's, it's, a, well, it's not theoretical, it's real. Uh, but like mylar bags can kind of be considered Faraday cages where it doesn't allow electrostatic or electromagnetic interference to affect whatever's inside of it. Um, putting something in lead is kind of like a Faraday cage, uh, you know, because no, n- nothing can affect it. So, so this is the, this is the concern. If if you're not aware, um, that, in an electromagnetic like pulse, a lot of people have heard that term maybe in movies or TV shows like an EMP, uh, would uh, can essentially, you know, kind of fry circuitry, you know, circuit boards would be affected. Power grids can go down all this stuff because the electromagnetic field changes causes like static. You know, if you work in a technology business, if, if you're in any kind of like industry with technology, uh, or not even technology, I'm sure just in a lot of engineering, you, you you may be aware that you have to wear like what they call uh, static straps, which is like a wristband or even uh, something you wear on your feet that grounds you to, you know, to, to like, say, the bench you're working on. Um, and it keeps you from if you're handling like a circuit board, if you. Somehow you produce static, say, just from walking, you know, walking around, which can happen. Uh, It keeps the static from affecting the board. It keeps you from being conducive. You yourself, your human body from being electrically conducive. And it's very important because just one little, you know, bit of static shock could, you know, could ruin an entire circuit board. So it's an important thing. And that's what they're saying is essentially that these, these CMEs, these coronal mass ejections, again, that boy, does that sound hot, <laughs> uh, these mass ejections can, uh, they, they could essentially, you know, f- do the same thing, like create this weird static shift because it actually changes the electro, you know, the electromagnetic field of the earth and cause the stuff to no longer work anymore. hundred, like I was talking earlier in the article, 130 million people could be without power. Anyway, we'll keep going with the article. Uh, In order to forecast these events well in advance and alert those affected to get out of the way or turn equipment off, space weather experts rely on a long list of specialized instruments on the ground and in the sky, all of which could suffer maintenance issues if their budgets are slashed. Yay, give the government more money, blah, blah, blah. Uh, (laughs) But two are of particular importance. The Soho spacecraft run by NASA and the ESA, which contains chronographs, instruments capable of imaging the area of the sun where CMEs are born. The other is a NASA spacecraft called the Advanced Composition Explorer, which is parked a million miles away from the Earth in the direction of the Sun. Um, ACE measures solar wind and can provide an hour's notice of a CME hitting the Earth. That's our warning buoy, uh, Bonadonna said, of, of the a spacecraft that's the fire alarm going off saying get out of the house meanwhile if we were to lose that soho spacecraft we lose that ability to forecast geomagnetic storms murtaugh said but while both have both spacecraft have been extremely reliable so far they were launched in the mid to late 1990s and could give out at any time Uh, a replacement spacecraft for ace called discover is due to launch in 2014 and while several several other craft have already been launched to succeed Uh, Soho none can provide its full capabilities. Meanwhile, studies have found that while massive geomagnetic storms are rare, they are a real and eminent risk with as much as a 12% chance of one occurring in the next decade. According to some studies, the most recent geomagnetic storm to cause any significant damage to the earth occurred in 1989 when one knocked out power for nearly the entire province of Quebec, Canada, plunging 6 million people into darkness for nine hours. Uh, Now that's interesting. Okay. There's, there's a G4 that occurred In 1989, that pretty much took out the power for the entirety of Quebec, Canada. Obviously, Quebec is now back to normal and fine. Um, So, you know, how much of this is is kind of fear mongering is something I will definitely leave to you. Uh, The power industry runs on a very fine line now, Bonadonna told The Verge. They need to watch... Uh, solar activity very closely make sure it doesn't become a problem but they have done a very good job in the last several years of making improvements such improvements include systems to harden power grids and make uh, you know them more resilient against power surges and to identify which area which areas are more at risk as it turns out not all areas of the world are equally affected by a geomagnetic storm power stations close to the poles are at greater risk as are those located in areas where the surrounding ground minerals are more electrically conducive um, and we'll skip ahead more still, whatever happened, there's no, there's no telling when the next nightmare scenario might strike. It might be a G five storm on the order of 1989 Quebec. Okay. So the Quebec one was actually a G five. So it takes a G five to really do this kind of damage. And these happen pretty rarely. Uh, or it might be worse. So there can be worse than a G5. In 1859, the Carrington Carrington event was a geomagnetic storm so powerful it caused auroras as far south as Cuba and overloaded the dominant communication system of the time, the telegraph, shocking operators, sending sparks flying and even lighting uh, some small fires. Fast forward 150 years and the effects to a similarly similarly sized solar storm would be far worse, say Murtaugh and Bonadonna. If you lose dozens of transformers or more and are dealing without power a month for even a year. That's a totally different challenge to society to suburban survive an outage like that, Murtaugh said. Okay, so that's the article. Now again, how much of this is fear mongering? I mean even the article itself, and shame on the Verge (laughs) well no no shame, but you know, how how sad for the Verge to say, look, this is why we gotta have tax dollars, please, this is the only way we can solve it. Um I think if anybody went up to a company and said, hey look this is what can happen. We have a record of it happening in 1859. We have a record of it happening in 1989. You might want to make your business work so that this doesn't, you know, you might want it like you go up to an electric company, say there wasn't a government and you went up to a, you know, a private electric company and you as a, you know, be it a historian, a star watcher or someone that's involved in like privately studying the sun to perhaps you run your own little uh, solar electricity business, which actually some, some private space industries are talking about like DSI. And you say to them, look, these things happen. It's happened in the past. And Quebec went without power for a while in 1989. It might be in your best interest to prepare for these kind of eventualities. You think a power company is not going to want to solve that? They say, well, the power company doesn't care. Are you kidding? Their employees go home and want to turn on the computer. Of course they care. So I'm a little dismayed with this article that like, Oh, please give us your money, you know, because government's the only thing that can solve it when actually this probably wouldn't even be an issue if we didn't have governments and we had a genuine, you know, real free market system that, that allowed for the creation of who knows what, what kind of wonderful, uh, you know, power, um, alternatives or protections that we could have right now. I mean, you know, that, that's the easy thing to say in in the theoretical, but um, you know, th- this is this is a valid concern all the same. As rare as it is, it is a valid concern, and it has occurred in the past. Um, you know, and right now we are such a technology. we are in such a technical, uh, you know, technological utopia that if something like this happened, yeah, we we'd have some tr- we'd have problems. I mean, just think if the water stopped, you know, if the water just stopped flowing for a while, imagine what that would do. And and for you know this kind of power to be lost, that you know that could certainly occur. Now, what's the answer to that? Okay, if, if this sort of thing happened, if suddenly all the computers went down, um, the, the, well, first off, obviously, like we already said, the answer is not the government. Um, is the answer something like permaculture? Okay, or people who are into the whole survivalist thing? Well, maybe they could. I think those kind of the, you know that that type of person uh, could certainly you know who's interested in that sort of thing uh, could definitely you know, help people get through these times by showing them. But then that just proves the point that the real, the real answer to this, when this occurs is education. Okay. Um, And if you want to have personal redundant systems that somehow allow you, like, say you get, so like I said, say the water stops flowing. Uh, You could have, you know, toilets, composting, self-composting toilets that don't require water at all. You could, you know, have something like that if you're concerned about these things and, and you know, it's legit. It, it is legit, um, you know, that, that this can happen. So but but again, I, I certainly don't expect the government to be able to to solve it uh, at all, you know, and, and actually this article doesn't talk about it. But the NOAA um, and groups similar to that, the ESA also has similar groups that covers pretty much the entire Commonwealth of Nations, which includes Canada, uh, have been relatively you know, aware and they couldn't solve what they couldn't keep from happening. What happened in Quebec in 89. Um, so, but you, but you can look in, you know, more into that, but you know, what, what do we do when the, when the lights go out, you know, should we just start, we, we need to stop depending on technology and run away, you know, and go back to the stone age to where these kind of natural events that occur in the universe, everywhere in the universe that, you know, that we should just stop. No, (laughs) that's not going to solve anything. Um, I mean that, that, that kind of, you know, and, and that's what this article got sent to me by, I think someone saying, it's like, look, this is why we need to get back to nature and all this stuff. And I'm all fine with getting back to, uh, our personal nature. I don't know how much I, you know, I like green technologies. That's another good thing too, is okay, fine. Yeah. Let's look into green technologies that could somehow survive this sort of thing. And that's the real answer is not to just shun technology, but to figure out how to keep technology, how to like naturally somehow shield technology from electromagnetic or geomagnetic um, you know, disturbances and things of that nature. And that's stuff that people are looking into, you know, it's it is happening. Um, the NOAA is not really looking into it. They're not looking to be proactive or, I mean, they're proactive in the sense that they're alarming people and letting them know, but no one is trying to figure out, okay, how can we keep, you know, electronics from being affected? Um, what are better ways to, you know, and, and if this were as serious a problem, again, this whole article is a lot of fear mongering, but if this were as serious a problem, um, as as they're kind of claiming, you could definitely, uh, you know, if, if there were a free market. Um, they, they would certainly just figure out something to, to where, because they're saying they can't get funding like that, for, you know, to, to put up more satellites, to be able to detect this stuff. Believe me, the free market wouldn't, wouldn't let it fly. And they'd have more satellites up there than you could imagine with more money, uh, than you'd, than the government could even imagine as fast as they could. So the real answer here is education, not to go back to the stone age. It's just, okay, if this happens, what do we do and how do we get back from it? And that's stuff that we can all learn. And I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech.
0: Are you ready? I've never seen anyone so treated like a, a god in my life.
2: Brian Sovereign as guest co host tomorrow night, and so that should be a good show. On that note, uh, what we were just we're
1: added doing? Brian Sovereign. Okay, we haven't... Oh. Is he good?
2: He's, he's been in the audience. He's, oh, he's yeah, certainly
1: we've... got opinions on things, yes. I'm so close to being like God, no one is above me. Mm-hmm. Okay, absolutely no one. I don't take <laughs> orders from anybody, and uh, I mean, that that's... How much closer to God can you get? Is there anything he doesn't do better than everyone else? Oh, that's just his way of talking. He's one of the best. Break it down! Catch Sovereign Tech, the show about technology and how it can set you free with me, Brian Sovereign. That's S O V R Y N at SoundCloud.com slash Sovereign Tech. Wow.
0: Wow. It's a website of the week.
1: It is time for Website of the Week, where I cover websites that I consider particularly useful, educational, uh, fun, even, or you know, whatever, just something I may, I may seem, you know, find interesting uh, to share with my listeners or that just tickles my fancy somehow. But anyway, this is one, this definitely falls under education. Um, and it is a website that is absolutely fascinating, incredibly important in my opinion. And it is one of the few websites and few resources I've seen out there where I feel like, okay, whoever's running all this is definitely thinking differently. And they're definitely thinking for starters. Um, I mean, and, and they're, they're really mo- advancing, uh, human thought in, in a very, and human existence in a very real way. This is very exciting. Uh, it's one of the best websites personally, in my opinion, on the internet and one of the most important, and it is the Albert Einstein institution. Okay. And you can go to a Einstein that's E I N S T E I N.org. And of course, it'll be in the show notes but a And what is the Albert Einstein institution? Well, real quick, the Albert Einstein institution is a nonprofit organization advancing the study and use Of strategic nonviolent action in conflicts throughout the world. We are committed to the defense of freedom, democracy, unfortunately, and the reduction of political violence through the use of nonviolent action. Our goals are to understand the dynamics of nonviolent action in conflicts, to explore its policy potential, and to communicate this through print and other media, translations, conferences, uh, consultations, and workshops. Okay, there it is. And it's beautiful. Uh, there's lots of free books to download by, uh, by pretty much the head guy at the Albert Einstein Institute, Gene Sharp. Uh, they offer free books. And of course there's also, you know, even deeper books that you can purchase that go into the subject a lot more. And it is incredible. It is the idea that wars don't have to be fought violently or that wars don't even have to be fought. It is the idea that nonviolence may be more effective which there's plenty of proof for that. And you can look at this website and and look into it. That nonviolence may be 10 to a hundred times more effective than violent action. Uh, it asks the big question that why is national defense? Not that I care about nations. I'm an anarchist. Okay. But why does national defense immediately equate superior firepower? You ever thought about that question before? You know, I, I certainly had like kind of stumbled on it. But it wasn't until I was reading some of the books uh, from this website uh, where where, you know, it was literally laid out. It's like, why do we instantly think that you that it requires violent the ability to unleash violent force as equ you know, equatable to national defense? There is no reason to think that. Just no one ever asked that question before. Yeah, very, very impressive. Uh, I mean, that question alone is, is an astonishing thing, but if you're wondering, you know, a lot of, a lot of Liberty minded people, a lot of anarchists, they instantly goes like, look, we got to bring down the state. We got to go to violence. No, we do not. Well, then what do we do? This website gives you some of your answers or at least your possibilities that you have. It is fantastic. It is unfortunately, um, interested in, uh, policy and politics, Of course those words come from the same thing. Um but all the same it is definitely stuff that can be used for, you know, in in anarchist thought. And I mean other big questions that it kind of asks is that okay, just because say say an opposing force or an occupying force is in is in a a landmass, does that mean that they own the landmass? No. Not necessarily. And quite frankly, it's interesting questions to ask because I think if you live in the United States, you live in an occupied country right now. It's occupied by the government. It's Brian Saver. I'll be back with more.
0: Time now for 90 seconds on sex with Dr. Paul.
2: Researchers have just published a new study on young men who have normal erections but take erection drugs for recreational purposes. This might be due to unreal expectations that their penis needs to be like those of porn stars who are probably taking erection drugs themselves. Now the problem is that once young men who don't need erection drugs start taking them, they become less confident in their own erections. They expect erections that are harder than normal and quicker on the rebound, so they give themselves a false expectation of what an erection is supposed to be. Now it's interesting that one of the disappointments that older men with erectile dysfunction have with these drugs is that they aren't able to recreate the kind of erections that these guys had when they were young. But for 20-year-olds without erection problems, drugs like Viagra and Cialis don't have the difficult job of raising the dead, so to speak. So the drug has a better chance of creating a porn-like erection, although not all guys like the sensation that results. If you have normal erections, please understand that nature didn't create them to be like baseball bats. And no matter what your age, if you don't need erection pills, please don't take them. Because the latest research seems to suggest that you might end up, depending needlessly on expensive pills, when the money would be better spent on flowers and romance.
0: For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com.
1: It is time for listener emails where I go meeny, meeny, miny, mo, or I judge something by its timeliness to be talked about that gets sent to me through the various channels. It's kind of similar to Tech Roulette. But in this case, you're not just sending me a story, you're more asking maybe my opinion on things or what I think of something. Um, And you are welcome. You are always, always welcome to ask me really anything you want. Uh, I've said that before in the show, but you definitely can. You can email me, SovereignTech at Hush.ai. You can get in touch with me on on my own personal Google Plus page, which I am inviting you to join me on, especially with Google Plus uh, being really kind of new and fresh right now. And... You know, so so don't, don't hesitate. Ask me whatever you want. You want to ask me, you know, how did I become an anarchist or what do I think of, um, you know, what do I think of the red and black, you know, or what do I think of communism or what do I think about whatever, you know, what do I think about uh, platypi, you know, just. You can ask me whatever, and eventually, if not right away, I'll you know I'll get to it on uh, on the listener email section, which is what we're in right now. Also, if it is a question, say it's a technical question, or maybe even an investment question, or something along those lines, to where it's very time sensitive. As in, look, I'm going to do this buy in a couple days, and I've gotten these questions before in the past. Um, you know, and, and it's very time sensitive. I won't wait to answer it on the show. I'll answer it on the show later, but you can say, look, I really need to know this kind of like right now. And if I have the opportunity, I won't always admittedly, but if I have the opportunity, I will answer your question any by email, uh, as soon as possible. So keep that in mind. Um, you know, I, here I am, Brian sovereign, you know, a, a, a anarchist Liberty resource ready for you. How about that? And this week's question is it's one I got a little while back and I've been very reticent to kind of talk about it. Uh, well, not, I haven't been reticent, but I wanted to be very careful and I still want to be very careful in how I talk about it. Um, so I could get something, I may get something wrong here, or I may say something that I didn't necessarily mean. And if you have more questions about it, Hey, that's what this section's all about. Asking me questions and allowing me to elaborate. Okay. Um, and this is about porn. You know, what are my opinions on porn? And you know what does that have to do with technology? Well, quite frankly, it has everything to do with technology, because in a lot of ways, technology has been forwarded by the desire for sex and explicit sex and for really pornography. In many ways, um, in fact, I, I can I can readily envision that perhaps the first time something was written down, you know, by our by our ancient ancestors, that it was perhaps some form of love letter saying i would really enjoy copulating in my cave with you and you know something to that effect uh but who who knows you know but I, i could believe that but anyway um so it has everything to do with technology and you know there's the there's the common adage that uh the internet is for porn that was like a song right you know that that's what or there's like rule 34 that eventually everything turns into porn. So everything in a lot of ways has to do with porn, right? So it's not a, it's not an unfair question to ask, uh, you know, a a tech journalist like myself. And I, I do have admittedly, I do have somewhat of a, uh, uh, some skin in the game, uh, no pun intended with porn as to where there are members of my family that are involved in it. Uh, that, that, and I won't mention names, but they are very, they, they are big deals in the porn business. And so I, I've been, I have been on a porn set. I have seen, you know, what, what exactly, how all that goes down. I've seen it in its production. Um, I am also an avid reader of erotica. Uh, in fact, next to a couple other subjects, it's probably the thing I read the most. Uh, because I mean, why, why wouldn't you read about sex? Come on. Anyway, uh so as far as porn, you know, okay, I think the quick question that like everybody wants to get down to is you know, is porn right or wrong? And that doesn't have an immediate answer. Okay. Uh you know, you we can come up with the the vulgar liberty answer and just say that, well, hey, as long as it's voluntary, you can do whatever you want. Um no, I don't agree with that. <laughs> okay uh because there are things i mean because to say for something i mean is that accurate okay as long as it's voluntary sure but then you have to ask yourself how far does voluntary go because if someone's psyche is acting outside of their best interests okay do you a if there's a psychological like problem let's say something from their past That is causing. I mean, let's look at it from the other side. All right, I'm kind of jumping around here, but let's look at it from the other side. Let's say something happened to you when you were young, and that has made you very anti-sex. Okay, you know, are you going to say that sex is wrong? No, you wouldn't say sex is wrong. It sex it just is. All right, so so you can come at that from both sides. In that. You know, that's why you can't just come right out and say, is porn right or wrong? Porn is essentially the display of sex. Now, is the way that that say women are portrayed in porn or the way that even men are portrayed in porn, um, are those right or wrong? Now, those are a little more that that's actually more to the question. Okay, is the act of displaying humans having sex for the enjoyment of other people to view later on wrong? No. It can't be. (laughs) It's just sex. And, but now that now we have to get into the deeper end of things. Okay. Why is that person, you know, performing in porn? In that case, that's where perhaps the, the ethics come into question as in, is this person being forced to do it? Is this person, um, you know, because, you know, they're addicted to drugs because their parents beat the shit out of them, you know, that they're, that they're on the set. Okay. In that case, you know, if you take an example like that, then yeah, it's unethical, I would say. Okay. So, so do you see how this is kind of a, you really, how you ask this question is, is very, you know, it, it can be very dicey. Um, and I don't, my bit, one of my biggest problems is the social conservative answer in that, yo, that I, I can't believe they're doing that. This is terrible. Uh, no, (laughs) obviously not. I mean, I think I've made it very clear on this show in the past that one of my goals in life is to, well, for lack of a better phrase, destroy social conservatism. I want it gone because it's making, if anything, Here's another thing, you know, porn can be a very, very beautiful thing. I'm not saying that the porn, the average porn that you catch on Pornhub or RedTube.com is somehow like, you know, good and ethical or that, you know, like that that somehow that's okay. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what I, what I am getting at, there's a lot of porn that can be a very beautiful thing. And if there is porn that's unethical, or if there is porn that is somehow, You know, treating either a man or woman, you know, in a very, very derisive way that I believe can be very much a byproduct of our socially conservative society. okay, of puritanism, because it's pushing it all underground. It's pushing it all underground. It's making people think that they're doing that. They are doing something wrong when maybe they're not. And and it's turning things that are absolutely natural you know, into, into something very dirty, uh, quote unquote, when it's not, it's a beautiful thing. Um, so no, I, I don't, I don't really have a problem. I don't have a problem with porn in concept. Okay. In the abstract, I have zero problem with porn. Um, frankly, you know, I mean, this is, and you can call me crazy. That's fine. You know, I wouldn't mind if say, say I lived in, um, you know, say, say, say I lived in, uh, in a, in a housing complex of some kind or not a complex, but like, let's say I was just living in a town and I had my house and then there was a house, you know, uh, a few hundred feet away and say the people who lived in that house were having sex out on the, you know, and out on the back deck and I could see them and, you know, and they were just doing it and didn't care. Fine. I don't care either. <laughs> You know, I, don't, I I don't, and and I I do the same thing, quite frankly. Why, you know, this whole idea that a lot of this comes from the the notion that somehow sex is this very personal, personal thing, and it can be if you want it to be. That's okay, but it is one of the most basic things that we do and it's disgusting how porn companies are constantly attacked by governments from around the world and how porn is constantly attacked as being immoral or as being disgusting when boy you can watch people blowing limbs off and you know and guns everywhere body parts flying death 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 boom boom and nobody says a word even christians even the most religious of people will say oh that's fine that's war war is hell and what so you can see that and i mean they're claiming sex is hell too why can't we see that why does that get shoved underground i mean it's a great question and now i mean do i feel that that a lot of these people that that work in porn like i said i have been on porn sets do i feel that these people are very um they're not very self-aware and that they could definitely you know use a lot of um introspective thinking into what they're doing yes certainly certainly there are plenty of people in porn who i don't think um it's not beneficial to them to be in porn and it may not be what their authentic self really wants at the same time i do think that there are people who are very self-aware who are involved in that industry not just porn but prostitution uh you know pick your flavor And that they're very, very much aware of what they're doing and that there is absolutely nothing wrong with what they're doing, even if they charged money for it, which I mean the porn star, you know, again, that's what a lot of people say. What's the difference between a porn star and a prostitute? There's a camera. That's the only difference for the porn star. You know, that's what some people say. And I think a person can be, you know, I I mean, I don't like the harshness of that, but my my point being is that I think a person can be very self aware and be involved in that. There are there are porn sites that are that do like I talked about the you know how porn can be very beautiful. There are sites out there that are very beautiful in their presentation of sexual matters. Uh, there's Passion Dash HD dot com. That's a a pretty popular one where it is. I mean these are people living it up. You know and these porn sets are very very nice. Um, and, and it's just a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, there's, there's a, there's another, I can't think of the other one, but there's another one where, um, it's all women. And, uh, I mean, I think these women are very self-aware and they're just celebrating femininity. And I think that's great. Um, so, so there's, you know, it can be a really gorgeous thing. There's no doubt about it that a lot of this, um, like gonzo porn kind of stuff, uh, a lot of, you know, this really like hardcore uh, business, you know, yeah, that you know, that makes me wonder. And like I'm not I'm not a fan of, of of BDSM. Um I do think the idea of you enjoying pain um I mean just run run that run that thought through your head. I enjoy receiving pain. And just you know tell tell me where that explain to me where that's like a genetic trait. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's like the whole point. Like, why, why do I have senses Sense you have senses to, in many ways to experience the world, but also to keep you from avoiding harm. So how could it be natural for you to enjoy getting harmed? So, you know, there's that aspect of it too. Like I say, I, I realize I'm kind of all over the place with this, but it's, it's a very, it's a huge topic. I may do a special on it in the near future, um, but another point is that and here's something I want to I point out real quick this is, an, this is an important point a lot of people say that breasts aren't a big deal that it's an American like fetish because of the porn industry and because, um, you know, because w- women are forced to wear clothing that, that doesn't show them I totally disagree because if you look at Venus goddess statues from 10,000 years ago breasts were a big deal even back then we've always loved porn this is Brian Sovereign, I'll be back with more. Hey, Launch.
0: No! In the third age of mankind,
1: an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity, it is our
2: last, best hope for peace. It is Babylon 5. All fighter squadrons lost. Return fire. Well, free them. Free
0: them. Watch Babylon 5
1: you can watch Babylon 5 and experience the greatest show in television history. See the entire series completely free by going to WB.com slash shows slash Babylon 5. Software
0: of the Week.
1: It is time for software of the week where I cover a piece of software that may completely suck, or it could be the greatest thing since um, sliced bread. Just kidding, because sliced bread isn't great. Uh, it's actually rather harmful to you. and can kill your sex drive because it's a grains, and why would you want your sex drive killed? That's just the question that goes into my mind. It doesn't have to be the one in yours. Um what we're going to talk about this week for software of the week, this is something that's been around for a little bit, but it's just starting to really spread because it just got added onto iOS. And it looks like as has been rumored for months that it's going to start appearing on Google Chrome, the web browser. Um, And this is Google now. Now, if you don't, if you don't know what Google now is, it's essentially if you look on your phone, if you have an Android phone or now even um, in iOS, you know, uh, an iPhone, or an iPad, if you look on it and you look towards the top or wherever you happen to put it and you see the, the Google search bar, as soon as you hit that, as soon as you touch, as soon as you press that search bar, that's Google now, because what it does is it creates these little cards that come up that tell you the weather, uh, tells you like local ticket times. It tells you when your plane is going to leave. It tells you all these things. Wait a minute. How does it know all that before I even ask it? because it bases it on the searches that you normally put into Google or it bases it upon like emails that you receive in Gmail. And before you think that that's really scary, that they know that much about you, um, just understand that you're giving them the information in the first place by using Google. It only knows what you give them. Okay. It's not scanning your, your Hushmail account. You know, it's not scanning what you do on Yahoo all right, to, to be able to give you those cards, it's only searching within what you actually give to Google. So be aware that this is relatively voluntary. Um, and if you don't want Google now to know that much about you, stop using Google services. Okay. But I find Google now to be incredibly, incredibly useful. Um, what I, I see it as it's far more helpful to me than Siri uh, ever could be which Siri is Apple's version kind of or of Google Now where you ask it a question and then it replies um you can do the same thing you can talk to Google Now and it will give you an answer of course not in a verbal form like Siri would but in a card form um but I mean it just you know it knows it was amazing when I again I I went to TerraCoin conference 2013 in San Jose the day before it gave me the weather my my plane was going to stop in Denver and then in San Jose the night before leaving it gave Google now gave me the, the cards for the weather in Denver for the next day and in San Jose for the next day. It gave, it told me when my flight was going to leave. Uh, it told me how long I had, you know, it, it brought up the option to get directions to the airport and Google maps. It did all this stuff. It just, it'll talk about personal assistant. Okay. And I, and I've been in jobs where, you know, I've had, I've had a secretary, you know, that does all this stuff. And wow, Google now did everything that a secretary would. Fantastic. Uh, I mean, I love it. And now it's available for iOS. Um, and I loved Google's attitude and we'll be talking about this more during pick of the week when we talk about Google IO 2013, but Google's attitude is like, look, we we do web services. This is what we do. And there's no reason for that to be platform specific. So they made, they really Google with, uh, with releasing Google now for pretty much everything. And again, it's going to be coming soon to where it works just in your Chrome browser. Amazing. Um, They're making Apple and Microsoft and BlackBerry and whoever else. I mean, they're just making them look like, quite frankly, like jerks because no, our services you can only get on our platform is where Google says, we'll give it all to you, baby, you know, and, and, and use it how you wish. Um, and, and it's true. And, and you think, and Apple users are just picking, they're eating it up. They, they want it all over. I mean, they love Google now, just like when Google maps went away from, for, uh, for Apple users, as soon as it came back, it was the most downloaded app in pretty much, I think in app store history for Apple, because this is what people want. So Google now check it out. If you haven't, it is amazing how much it helps you and how much uh, useful information it just brings to your, you know, right to your eyes. Fabulous. This is Brian Sober, and I'll be back with more. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-Liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's L-R-N F-M. Stop playing those video games! Uh, 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 just a minute, Mom.
0: Game Talk.
1: It is time for Game Talk, one of my favorite parts of the show. Um... Just so you know, I mean, I'll make this announcement really fast with Game Talk. Again, we talk about games, gaming news, uh, even how it can pertain to Liberty at times or to health, because, I mean, Liberty is all about health too, right? Uh, And, but real quick, just a piece of news, the, they, Microsoft finally did hold their little press conference as to what the next Xbox is going to be, and it's called the Xbox One. And i i haven't looked into it too much because i really i'm i don't i don't care a whole lot about console gaming except for maybe nintendo but the only tidbit that i of news that i am aware of and i haven't looked into this enough yet but you can check it out for yourself is that when the xbox one when they released it uh after the conference and the news was out about it the stock for sony skyrocketed whatever that says about the xbox one i don't know but uh take a look. I'll, I'll also, from what I understand, it's not backwards compatible at all with any previous Xbox systems. Not that that would be a really new thing, but, um, anyway, so just letting you know that that's out there and that is happening. If that's something you're interested in, um, maybe you want to ask me, what do I consider, you know, a great console? We can do that for listener email, or, you know, we could, we could do a breakdown of consoles, or if you had to buy Brian sovereign golden stallion, if you had to buy a console today, which one would you buy? If you're interested in that question, go ahead and ask me, um, and we'll talk about it, uh, in the listener email section. Anyway, this is another this is a story from Kotaku. I get lots of stories from Kotaku. It's a great, great aggregator of, uh, you know, of game stories. And this is also oddly kind of falling in line with, with kind of the theme of the show where we've been talking about the stone age to some degree, uh, or, you know, paleo and like the paleo lifestyle. And this article is by Kirk Hamilton and it's a whole new way to play video games, standing up. Now I've talked about this before in the show, actually like some, there's a good three episodes where I wasn't in the studio. I was on location. And each time I did that, I was actually standing up for the whole show, pretty much two hours strong. Um, I was standing up and so it's something that I'm very interested in. I like the idea of standing desks and I have not really done this. I might try this later, I I might try out, okay, what's it like to, you know, to stand up and play a video game. Maybe I'll give that a shot. But anyway, let's read the article. Um, It's not every day you discover a whole new way to play video games. Yet over the past month, I've done just that. I have found a way to play games that makes me feel better, more alert, healthier, and more involved. How have I accomplished this? I started playing video games while standing up. Oh, damn it. You're probably saying vigorously tapping a fresh pack of cigarettes on your palm while gazing into the middle distance. Another article about the perils of sitting. And yeah, that's what this article is. But really, it's just my story. I didn't anticipate how much I'd like standing. So I thought I'd share the story of how I came to start playing video games and working while standing up. Since I started working for Kotaku full-time a year ago, I found myself sitting uh, a lot more than I used to. I spent seven years as a music teacher, and I used to bike to school every day and spend a few hours on my feet in front of a class directing a band. My day-to-day didn't feature all that much sitting. I also had a more flexible schedule and would run in the park just about every day. What sitting I did was broken up by long periods of standing, walking, running, and bike riding. When I started writing full time, that changed. I don't have time to run most days. I spend my shift sitting in front of a computer and when I'm reviewing a game, my nights are spent playing it. During the 2011 fall video game rush, I found myself sitting down for 12 hours or more with minimal standing breaks, often uh, for days on end. Every day, I seemed, it seemed I saw another article about the perils of too much sitting. Sitting is bad for you. Uh, sitting for more than 11 hours a day greatly increases your chances of dying in the next three years. Exercise won't counteract it either. Sitting is itself a damaging thing to do to your body. But really, I didn't need to read those studies. I only needed to listen to what my body was telling me. My energy levels had plummeted. My digestion felt weird and I was never hungry. My legs would ache when I'd stand. They'd uh, feel swollen and off somehow, like they weren't getting enough blood. My lower back became more prone to painful freakouts, especially when I'd sneeze. Basically, everything from my ribcage down was asking me repeatedly, Dude, what are you doing? My body did not like my new lifestyle. At the same time, I'd seen all these articles about the dangers of sitting. I'd also seen more and more people talking about the merits merits of standing desks. I began to read. Here's what I learned: It's best to try converting your desk into a temporary standing situation before buying an expensive standing desk. Um, it's not healthy to stand all the time. It's good to take breaks and keep a balance. Still, standing for the majority of your day is better than sitting for the majority of your day. Your feet will get sore and it's good to get some sort of pad or wear comfy shoes. Okay, I thought, I can give this a shot. I started homemade. I took a shelf off the bookshelf in my kitchen and placed it on two coffee cans, upon which I placed my monitor. I put another piece of wood on top of two cardboard boxes and put my keyboard on that. Before long, I had a desk at which I could stand and work. It didn't take long for me to realize that, yes, this was something I was interested in. After a couple days working while standing up, only working, mind you, playing video games didn't come until later, I already felt better, stronger, and healthier. My legs were sore in a good way and my posture was good all day and I felt more focused as I worked. I decided to invest in a standing desk. Um and he looked I he got the Ergotron WorkFit S single HD workstation which cost him about 400 bucks. There's quite a few out there. I recommend looking into them. Uh, we've kind of talked about them before on Sovereign Tech. So Uh, The weekend after I got my standing desk set up, the Guild Wars 2 beta was happening. I've been interested in this game for a number of reasons, mainly because it looks like a lot of fun and like it might welcome non-MMO players like me into the fold. I got into the beta and decided to do an experiment. I'd play through the beta weekend while standing up. Saturday morning, I got, got up, logged on and started playing standing and it was great. A lot of times, MMO-style PC games can make me tune out a bit after a while. It's probably due to years of console controller usage, but I don't always feel as engaged at the mouse and keyboard as I did when I was a kid. The moment I stood up, that went away entirely. I felt present and connected to the game in a way I hadn't in a while. Alert and easily able to manipulate the game to do my bidding. Anytime my feet felt tired or I wanted to take a break, I simply slid the Ergotron down to a sitting position and played while sitting. The standing mount brings my monitor much closer to my face than it usually is, which connects me in the game while letting me keep a consistent angle for my head and shoulders. Anytime I need to rest my eyes, I just turn away and walk away from the computer, pace around a bit, make a phone call, whatever. Everything feels more fluid, faster, and easier uh, than when I played while sitting down. It didn't stop at Guild Wars 2. My newfound love of standing was has now gone beyond traditional mouse and keyboard PC games. I play a lot of games on my PC with a controller, from cross-platform games like uh, Bulletstorm and Far Cry 2 to platformers like Limbo and Braid. It used to be I'd uh, move my PC over to my HDTV to play those on a big screen. These days, i leave it plugged in my desk and, pl- and play these uh, games standing up. My now second playthrough of Knights of the Old Republic? standing this last weekend playing skyrim Dawnguard? upright playing a first person game while standing up is a heightened highly enjoyable experience it sounds a bit silly but when i play far cry 2 while standing i feel more connected to my silent after avatar after all he's standing too isn't he i don't exactly role play it Uh, i don't kneel in the bushes and take a knee when sliding but i do feel more physically involved in the game in other words standing has begun to move beyond health for me it started to actually make the games better and when you think about it, it makes sense. Many of our first-person gaming, first gaming experiences involved standing at arcade machines, joystick in hand. There's something to be said for returning to that feeling. I never felt listless or uncomfortable when I was at the arcade. I felt loose and free, engaged and awake. It wasn't entirely due to the fact that I was standing, but it certainly didn't hurt. And that, that's he hit the main point that I wanted to get at, is that, you know, this is how video games used to be played. Like, it was just normal. We didn't sit down at anything. We, I mean, from Computer Wars to Pong to Pac-Man, you know, keep going up to Defender Stargate, keep going up the list, to Frogger, um, you know, Space Invaders, I mean, name, uh, you know, Time Tunnel, name the classic game, Red Baron, whatever. You stood at all of them. You know, eventually, like, it kind of became like a nicety that you, some of these games would, would have like a, a bench on them, like uh, when Steel Talon came out. Uh, which was a helicopter simulator game that had you know they had a sit down like feel to it but then that made that got you more intense in the game which is his point is that a lot of these games really are more engaging when you're standing up as to where okay yeah if you're playing steel talon you're supposed to be inside of like a helicopter cop- cockpit so it makes sense that you'd be sitting down and it made you feel more engaged so this like isn't new news he's treating it as new and nobody apparently really does it unless you use like the wii But that's something I wonder if Nintendo knew had that little secret up their sleeve. They said, no, you know, what? if we get them moving when they play the games with motion controls, they'll get more engaged. And then, like we said earlier in the show, the Wii became the best-selling console of all time. So give it a shot, standing while
0: playing. This is Brian Southern. Are you searching for a mouth-watering, all-natural, sweet and sticky treat? What if I told you it was also made by a chef who believes in freedom, just like you? You're not dreaming. This is real. Head over to mandrik.com. That's m-a-n-d-r-i-k.com. There you'll find Georgia's famous baklava in classic and dark chocolate flavors. Mmm. To those with special health needs, Georgia's famous baklava also has a treat for you: golden, delicious, low-carb, gluten-free almond cookies. Order with PayPal or Bitcoins. In just a few days, your sweet treats will await you right at your doorstep. One more time, that's M-A-N-D-R-I-K.com for George's Famous Bacobot. Hacker Stories
1: It is time for Hacker Stories, where we talk about, uh, you know, some of the heroic acts and some of the heroes on planet Earth, be they black hat, white hat, or gray hat. Uh, we talk about hackers and hacking in general. Um You know, admittedly, okay, there are such things as malicious hacking attacks, okay? Um, Some people have gotten confused and they think that I don't believe that. Uh, The point that I make in that when I consider a lot of black hat hackers, which are, you know, considered the malicious types, where I consider them heroes as well, is because a lot of times their actions are like against, say, the government. And that a lot of times the news industry is painting them to, it's painting a situation to be malicious or malevolent, or they're painting it to be a fear mongering piece when actually it's not that at all. And that the real criminal could actually be the person that the hacker is exploiting or going, you know, or, or, or doing their hacking against. And that's my point, but there definitely are gen, there are people out there. And, uh, I dare say that I think half of them work for governments that, do a genuine malevolent acts of hacking. Um, I would, I would love for there to be, and I'm not the person to do this. Someone in the 2600 community, like Emmanuel Goldstein or somebody, somebody far more pro- uh, prominent would be far better to do this, but there should be another term. Maybe there already is. And I just can't think of it right this second. Um, but maybe, maybe there should be another term for that kind of you know, besides black hat, white hat, gray hat, maybe there should be some kind of term for someone that is just really, really kind of twisted, um, you know, in, in what they do with, with a computer. And, uh, you know, if you know what it is, you can email me at sovereign at hush.ai. But anyway, let's, let's look at this story and and we'll talk about it whether or not this is malicious. Um, and this story comes from Ars Technica, one a huge tech blog and it's, uh, This is from uh, May 3rd of 2013 and it's internet explorer zero day exploit targets nuclear weapons researchers. Okay. So what is a zero day exploit? Um, zero day, or it can can also be a zero hour or like a day zero, uh, attack or exploit. Um, it's a computer threat that, that tries to, you know, uh, exploit like a, a like the vulnerabilities of something. OK, um, you know, it, it, they call it zero day, essentially, because, like, say, the developers of software, they couldn't address or like they couldn't really patch the vulnerability that gets used as in it was released with this vulnerability into it and someone knew about it right away. And so they used it instantaneously and there was no time, you know, to fix it, because maybe it was even a feature of, of say, the software like Internet Explorer. Um, and so that's what a zero day means is that it's something that was, you know, instantly, uh, you know, it may be a feature or just a vulnerability that's kind of built in or at least ignored with a, with software or on a computer and that it was used to, you know, to, to hack, uh, use it as the vehicle to to, to hack with. Um, so if you didn't know what that was, that's what that is. And okay. The article goes on attackers exploited a previously unknown And it's interesting that they're calling them Nars technica is pretty pro hacker from what I understand. Um, so it's interesting that they call them attackers. Now, maybe that's the term we need to use is that they're not hackers. They're more attackers. I don't know, but, uh, let's see if these guys are even bad guys. Attackers exploited a previously unknown and currently unpatched security bug in Microsoft's Internet Explorer browser to surreptitiously install malware on the computers of federal government workers involved in nuclear weapons research, researchers said on Friday. The attack code appears to have exploited a zero-day vulnerability in IE version 8, that's Internet Explorer 8, when running on Windows XP, Researchers from security firm uh, Invincia said in a blog post the researchers have received reports that IE running on Windows 7 is susceptible to the same exploit, but have not been able to independently confirm that version six and seven of the Microsoft browser don't appear to be vulnerable. Um, and there's an update here in an advisory published uh, a couple hours after this article went live talking about the article we're reading right now, Microsoft confirmed a code execution vulnerability in IE8 version six, seven, nine, and 10 of the browser are immune to the exploit. People using IE8 should upgrade to versions nine or 10. If possible, those who are unable to move away from version eight should take the following mitigations. And then it gives a list of, of things to do. You can check that out in the show notes if you want. The attack was triggered by a U.S. Department of Labor website that was compromised to redirect visitors to a series of intermediary addresses that ultimately exploited the vulnerability, according to uh, Invincia. The exploit caused vulnerable Windows machines to be compromised by poison ivy a notorious backdoor Trojan that had been modified. So it was detected by only two of 46 major antivirus programs in the hours immediately following the attack. The specific web pages that were hacked dealt with illnesses suffered by employees and contractors developing a topic, uh, developing atomic weapons for the department of energy. The blog post said, citing uh, this report from NextGov, that's consistent with the so-called watering hole attacks in which employees of target of a targeted organization are infected by plant, malware on the sites they're known to frequent um, the target of this attack appears to be employees of the Department of Energy that likely work in nuclear weapons research and Vincia researchers wrote in a separate report published Wednesday the report went on to cite this to cite the technical this technical analysis from security firm AlienVault. It found indicators in the command servers. Poison Ivy contacted that the attack was carried out by Deep Panda, a group of hackers believed to be located in China and carry out espionage attacks on other countries. Initial reports about the Department of Labor website compromise uh, said uh, an older IE vulnerability that Microsoft patched in January had been exploited. It was only in Friday's report that Invincia said this assessment is incorrect. For non Invincia users, there are known mitigations for this exploit that is currently in the wild. Friday's report warned, for users of IE8, there is no patch currently available, and with this exploit being out in the wild, the potential risk for damage is high. Okay, a lot to take in there. Um, first off, I imagine most of my listeners aren't using Internet Explorer. <laughs> Only the United States government would still be using IE8. <laughs> oh. Or Windows XP for that. Well, that's not true. I like Windows XP. That is... Windows XP, I've always said, will probably go down as perhaps the greatest operating system of all time. So I'm not knocking that so much. But then most people I know that use Windows XP use Google Chrome. So what the hell are you doing using uh, IE8? Anyway, that said... Now, if this is coming from, and we don't know, it's a group called Deep Panda, supposedly. And it's actually what they're claiming is, or what they're hinting at, is that the Chinese government is going after scientists that that develop nuclear weapons in the United States. Maybe. If so, this kind of nonsense is governments against governments. um, And may just prove the point of what I think may be the actual point that look, nuclear weapons can't be trusted with anybody or any group of people. Um, That doesn't mean I say ban nuclear weapons. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the last thing you want, you know, you want in charge of a nuclear weapon is a government because they still use antiquated software (laughs) like IE8. But I would, I'd be far more likely to believe that Deep Panda or whatever actual group of hackers that did this, were idealists and and had a philosophical grounds as in they wanted to perhaps and i'm not saying that it's right you know to go uh you know maliciously uh, uh you know accostize people or uh that that are involved in nuclear research but i would believe that 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 was more the idea is that it was just some group of hackers who are like look nuclear weapons are a terrible thing okay in in their very existence which frankly, I, I agree with, like I said, I'm not saying ban nuclear weapons. I'm not saying nuclear weapons can't be developed. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, I, I would love the world where they didn't exist, you know, where I wasn't worried about that much destruction ever being ever able to happen. Um, at least on earth. And, so i would believe that it was more a group of just people like saying you know you're you're making nuclear weapons you're developing you know atomic weaponry uh we don't like that we're going to mess with you we're going to make your life hell so that you know that this is wrong you know quote unquote uh i don't necessarily even support that kind of action but i guess it is a way to make a political statement um fortunately they weren't actually like at least it seems they weren't actual actually able to control the nuclear weapons because i don't want hackers to have that ability either. Uh, Unless they wanted to shut them down, maybe. (laughs) Because I never want one of those launched. Anyway, just a thought. Interesting. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech.
0: Oh, yeah. This is Stephanie Murphy, Sovereign Tech producer. You may know me from this show, but did you know that I have my own podcast? It's called Pork Therapy. Pork Therapy is a bit different from other shows. We cover current events, big ideas, and even relationship issues, all through the lens of how we can get more freedom in our lives. Oh, and you'll love Sex and Science Hour. Join me on my website, porktherapy.com. That's P-O-R-C-therapy.com. Now back to Sovereign Tech. What are you doing? I can't believe I caught you again! You know, Jesus doesn't approve of this little habit of yours.
2: I know, baby, I know it's wrong, but it feels so right.
0: Well, it ain't.
2: But I've been doing it since I was 12 years old.
0: (sighs) It's nothing but a sinful perversion of nature, if you ask me.
2: But baby, I don't ever want to stop looking at tech websites, new gadgets, video games, software,
1: or any of that stuff.
0: Well, then I'm leaving.
1: Okay. Bye. Pick of the the week. the week. It is time for pick of the week where I cover, uh, you know, something that either I find interesting, uh, it could be a movie, it could be an event, it could be a comic book, it could be a game. I mean, you name it, it could be a TV show, it could be a topic, it could be just a topic of some kind, um, or a philosophy or, or whatever, who knows? It could be anything I want. It's, it's, it's my, this part of the show where I discuss things, uh, even perhaps when they're not. Uh, when they don't have anything really to do with science and technology, it's just kind of a nice, fun way to end the show. Um, I, I really sometimes like, especially with, with sovereign tech specials, I can end the show on a pretty low note. And I, I don't care for that. I I like, I like the last segment of something to kind of be fun. But anyway, uh, this is about an event and it is certainly relative to technology. And it's about a, a really huge event that occurred, um, on May 15th of 2013. And that is Google IO 2013, which is essentially their developer conference. It's uh, it's similar to Apple holds the, uh, what they call the WWDC, the worldwide developer conference. And that became very, that developer conference became, uh, you know very popular because it's the time when Steve Jobs and Apple would essentially release you know new iPads and new iPods and uh new you know new computers and like all these new products would come out at that time. And Google IO is definitely a copy of that model. Uh but the, the, you know they're they're doing very well. You know they it's just as good. There's there's nothing wrong with them, you know, copying that idea. Uh last year's Google IO saw You know, like the introduction of the Nexus 10, I believe, or it was like the Nexus 7, the Nexus Q, um, a whole slew of new products came out from Google last year's 2012. A lot of hardware. And interestingly, this year at Google I.O. 2013, there wasn't really any hardware released and really nothing new. Uh, In fact, the only piece of hardware that was even really talked about was that they came out with a Google edition of um of the Galaxy S4 of Samsung's Galaxy Galaxy S4 which you could buy for $650. Um, and that is essentially the Google edition means that it has the pure Android experience like you'd get with any kind of Nexus device. Like I use my personal phone is a galaxy Nexus and that gets in what, what's the importance of, of having a Nexus device of having a, like a Google backed device, uh, is that you get the, you constantly get the latest version of Android that comes out with all the new features like my galaxy Nexus, the, the, the model itself is, you know, good two, three years old. But it has Android 4.2 on it, which a lot of phones, a lot of phones that are only a couple months old don't even have. So that's the importance of that. Uh, Apparently, talking about that quick announcement about the Galaxy S4 Google Edition, it was shocking that a lot of people, there was kind of a collective gasp when they said the price that it was $650. And this is something very important that I want to talk about. A lot of people in the United States don't realize that price of their phone. Like, you know, you, you wouldn't, most people, I think in America, they wouldn't spend $650 on a phone. They'll spend maybe 200 to 300, but they're not going to spend that, but they don't realize that's what a phone costs. It actually costs like $700 for a really, really great phone. The price of the phone gets subsidized by the two year contract that you sign with say sprint or Verizon or AT&T or us cellular or whoever. Um, so you are still really paying that much for that phone. So for people to be shocked, like, oh my God, how can that cost $650? That shouldn't be a shock because again, for a really good phone, like the gaming PC of phones, that's what it should cost. So that, that needs to, in other countries, they don't even worry about that. You know, they'll hash out 600 bucks for, for a galaxy note two. you know, in a, in a heartbeat because they know that's just what it costs. Um, So that's a uniquely like that's a unique problem in the United States for people to realize that. But anyway, that wasn't even that big of an announcement. I mean, it's cool that it exists, um, but that wasn't like the big deal. Uh, Other than that, there was no hardware. Everything was all about software and there wasn't a whole lot new introduced at Google I.O., but pretty much everything that Google does just instantly became better, (laughs) which is kind of hard to believe. But it's true. Um, There are a lot of improvements to Google Maps that are just being, as you're listening to this, they're just being released to uh, iOS and Android um, and, of course, on the web page to where you can, um, I mean, everything just got really enhanced. So, you know, you can take a look at that and and believe me, you'll instantly see the differences in Google maps. Um, Google plus, which of course we are huge fans of on this show. We love Google plus, uh, that got a lot of improvements, design improvements, kind of where we were talking earlier in the show about Google now and how it has this card system. One of the big things that happened at Google IO is that just about every Google product went to this card system to where it shows little information cards. And that's where Google plus went to instead of having like the scroll up design design they went to like this card design and now there's instead of just one row of status updates and, and and posts it's three it can be like three rows you can change it you can make it go to one if you have a smaller screen but now it has three rows and it's these cards and they all kind of move and shift around and it's just a really really beautiful design uh google plus also now uh another thing that 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 was announced with that is that across your google services be it Google Plus. Um, and Gmail, and, uh, I think pretty much maybe even Google drive anyway, across your Google services for free, you get 15 gigs of storage. So like Gmail offered already like close to seven or eight gig worth of storage. Now, a lot of people, especially the average person doesn't get that much email to where they'd need eight gig of storage for their email anyway. And usually you just delete it. You know, you, I mean, you can archive everything, but you could archive everything for years if you wanted you know, with eight gig of storage. So to be able to use that to store your pictures on Google plus or whatever else, you know, to have that 15 gig across the line, across the board of your Google services, I think is really, really cool. Um, so that was, that was added there. Another thing added was on, um, on YouTube, uh, actually uh, another thing quick, Google drive also went to at least the mobile app, went to the card system too, which I think it looks really, really nice how it has that. Uh, but, uh, YouTube now, which I do post this show. I make a YouTube video of of Sovereign Tech, and there is a Sovereign Tech channel where I also I put up a lot of uh, documentaries and a lot of bonus content goes up there. That's only on the YouTube channel. Um, and on the YouTube channel, they actually you can you can listen you can change the speed at which the YouTube video plays now. So, you know, if you listen to Sovereign Tech on YouTube, you can actually listen to it like in triple speed. So that way you don't have to sit for an hour and 45 and you can just listen to it, you know, in like maybe an hour or less, which is pretty awesome. So I like that feature. Uh, So just all these different, there's also like Google essentially put in almost like a veritable Photoshop into Google Plus for your pictures. Um, Also, they they have this thing where it makes an, an automatic animated GIF. Of say a series of pictures that you take with your phone, uh, because all those normally get instant upla- uploaded privately. So tons of new features got got released. Um, another great thing that I really really like is the the Google Play Music All Access, which is for nine ninety nine. Or if you get in in and out before June, it's only seven ninety nine. But for nine ninety nine a month, you get essentially a Spotify. Um, a Pandora, you know, where you can listen to a, per, almost any song you want, um, you know, over the cloud and, and, and you can listen and, you know, you just type in the search and you play it and you can do it. But then Google play now we've talked about Google play music before on this, on this show and I love it. Then it even has where you can still store up to 20,000 of your personal songs. So you, you got it all. You have a music store. This is better than iTunes now. Uh, and it actually it's better than any music service out there now, better in the idea that it has more, it has every music feature that every music service offers all in one. It's the first time it's not, it's not really anything new, but it's new in that none, nobody has as yet combined all these elements together and Google did it first and it's working out really well. So you can purchase music if you want to from the Google play store, you can upload your personal songs because there's some songs like I listen to Stan Bush you can't, you can't get any, maybe a couple songs you can get of new songs. You can get of Stan Bush on the Google play store or in any music store for that matter. It's not like Google play has a lack of selection. They, they got all the major uh, music dealers for this. So you can, you know, I can upload my Stan Bush collection. I can upload uh, my David Hasselhoff collection, though. Interestingly, the Google play store actually had David Hasselhoff I'm not kidding. I'm not sarcastic when I say I listen to David Hasselhoff. I literally, I really, really do. And I enjoy it. Uh, so that was there. So it's a great service, especially if you can jump on it for $7.99 a month. Come on. You, you have access to, you know, millions and millions of songs, great music. Um, so that was there. And then at the end, Larry Page, the CEO of, of Google came out and he kind of gave, um, it was a very impressive kind of an inspirational speech. And one thing that a lot of people took away from that, I mean, there's a lot of things, but he said that a lot of these rules and regulations and laws are holding technology back. Um, And he talked about how a lot of companies don't want to like play ball with each other. They don't want to cooperate, which is what we were talking about earlier in the show Uh, as to where Google will cooperate But then, and I mean, they're not a hundred percent on that, obviously, you know, on cooperation there, there's been cases where they haven't cooperated like with Microsoft, but, um, but they were, they, they ripped on like Oracle for not cooperating with them, um, with open standards and things like that. And so, so that was interesting for him to, you know, just come out. And from what I understand, I actually, at, at TerraCoin conference, 2013 in San Jose, I talked to Declan McCullough for a little while. And he pretty much said that Larry Page is not a libertarian by any means, um, but he made an interesting comment that a lot of libertarians kind of latched onto, especially people that uh, you know that that I know very well because we're in the Free State Project uh, together. And what it is, he said that it would be nice if we could set aside somewhere, places in the world, where we can like experiment, you know. This isn't like, um, you know, the Island of Dr. Moreau, Uh, at least I don't think that's what he had in mind, but we could experiment with technologies or ways of living, you know, that and and see how they work out to see if that actually is better than what we're doing right now. And that was, that was perhaps the most fascinating thing for him to say. Now, see, when he says something like that, that sounds very much like something I'm a participant of, which is the Free State Project, which is the idea of moving 20,000 people, you know, to one area, that being New Hampshire. And achieving liberty in our lifetime, you know, whatever that means. I mean, the maximum, like, like with the free state project, it's, uh, the, the statement is the, uh, the maximum role of government is to protect, uh, you know, life, liberty and property or whatever. And, So so it was almost like and and a lot of people like the Free State Project site itself actually posted it saying, look, Larry Page is saying, yeah, that what we're doing is what needs to be done right now. We need to be trying other things, you know, and get away from all these rules and regulations or whatever. But again, he's not necessarily very libertarian. So I don't you know, from what I understand. So I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that. But that was an interesting comment. I totally agree with it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of intentional communities throughout history, be it Platonopolis, Libertatia, uh, which you may not know of either of those. Those are very, very old examples of intentional communities. Platonopolis never actually got existed because the Roman Senate stopped it from happening. Um, but the emperor wanted it to, to be so, which was going to be like a city of philosophers. Um, Libertatia was down in, in so- southern Africa was essentially a pirate colony. That was anarchic. It was, it was anarchy, like n- no rules, no masters. You, you know, no masters. It was, it was, it was really something. But you don't, re- you don't read about that much in the history books. Anyway, Google I/O was great. A lot of great products came out, and a lot of interesting thoughts, like the thing about Larry Page. If you have thoughts on it, email me at, SovereignTech at Hush.ai. And this is Brian Sovereign, and I'll see you next week.
0: This has been Sovereign Tech. Visit us at SovereignTech.com. That's sovryn techcom There you can connect with us, see more of what you've heard on today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is open source. We encourage you to share. Later,
2: nerds.